0: The following program is brought to you by Caltech.
1: Okay. Yeah. So I think I mean I think that what we want to do is basically just get some introduction from each of you, uh, as surely said, and then focus this, the discussion on you know, following up a little bit the theme of this morning, which is hot topics in UV science and technology. What you consider to be, say, the hot topics that you, I think, are. are important for us to focus on, uh, and also, um, you know, certainly, we. part of what we want to have during this discussion is a little bit of a discussion about what might be some of the goals of this workshop as we as we start thinking about uh, the technology uh, of the future in the UV. So, uh, let's uh, start off.
2: Do you want us to do those... Things, all of those things one well, by one as we go along? Or, I, or do you just want how, how about we do that
1: one by one? How about we do all of those things as um, one by one? But, um, and then maybe following that, then we'll open it up for questions and uh, and go from there. So. What? On the okay, so yeah, why don't you begin? Okay,
3: um, my name is Hakeem O'Mushevi. And um, as Shuley said, I've worked in uh, solar physics for uh, a while. And most recently, I've, I've turned my attention to other stars. Uh, I'm generally interested in uh, topics related to, to stellar variability. Um, and in, uh, when we study our nearest sun, excuse me, nearest star, the sun, um, most of that activity is occurring in the chromosphere and the corona and the so-called transition region. And of course, a lot of that action happens. Uh, to be best observable in the ultraviolet, and the extreme ultraviolet. Uh, And so right now there's a lot of interest, and there always has been, (laughs) a lot of interest in answering the question of what are the processes that heat plasmas to uh, temperatures above photospheric temperatures, right, to to several orders of magnitude greater. And also what are the processes that accelerate plasmas um, to form the solar wind and there's also the problems of solar energetic particles. Um, related problems include the solar dynamo, which um, is uh, how the magnetic fields at the surface of the sun are generated. Um, somehow these, these magnetic fields are generated, they rise to the solar surface, they cluster in small knots for some sort of reason that, that, that we don't understand um, uh, at the limit of our observations at about an arc second and now just just under that. Um, and then we have larger conglomerations of magnetic fields, sunspots, and one big question is what holds the sunspots together? Why don't they uh, disperse? Um, and we also need to measure the evolution of the magnetic field above the solar photosphere. So just, just about every... Uh, solar magnetograph instrument measures the, magne- the, the magnetic field at the solar sphe- at the photospheric level and now the question is is uh, it looks like the energy generation processes that drive solar heating solar plasma accelerations occur at the chromospheric transition region level and how do we uh, measure the magnetic fields in this region um, and so there are there have been rocket uh, experiments proposed for example the, the carbon Four. Uh, line at 1550 Angstrom, two lines there, are magnetically active. that They can be used to measure uh, magnetic fields in the chromosphere. But this is some of where the um, leading edge is. For example, the Advanced Technology Solar Telescope is designed to do exactly that. But we also want to be able to directly measure magnetic fields in the corona. Um, currently, our best view is of those magnetic fields that are filled with plasma that happen to be have high densities of plasma in them, but the entire volume is filled with magnetic fields, so we want to measure this. And people have attempted to use things like the Hanley effect to using light passing near the sun to uh, make such measurements. Um, But there's a a lot to be done for the sun, and of course studying the sun and stars is is sort of a two-way street. So we get a close look at the sun, but at the same time we can look at how um, other parameters, how the, what we see at the sun varies with other parameters, such as stars that have a different surface gravity, for example, may have a different photospheric abundances. How do, how do um, for stars, they're, they're, we can look at many of them, but of course we don't have a good satellite to do that, right? I think EUVE was uh, it, and uh, it's no more. So uh, there is a, a big need there.
0: Okay. Yeah. I'm Amanda Hendricks from JPL. And I do UV spectroscopy on solar system objects, and um, so one. My, one of my main focuses is um, small bodies in the solar system, so asteroids, moons, um, the Earth's moon. And, but of course, there's loads of people out there doing, um, looking at planets and, um, in general, bodies with atmospheres. Mostly, I study bodies with without atmospheres, and. Um, One of the advantages of using UV there is that we're looking at the uppermost layers of the regolith of any of these bodies. And so um, the UV is key in understanding weathering processes. So at the moon, we're studying space weathering effects from solar wind and micrometeoroid interaction. And um, on Jupiter's moons and Saturn's moons, we're looking at weathering effects from those moons being Mm. um, embedded in the magnetospheres of those planets. Um, other areas to look at are just plain old surface composition. And um, again, we go back to Earth's moon, and where we're looking at um, studying the composition using the UV, a little less traditional than using visible and near-IR wavelengths. But really um, important, for instance, for looking for Polar water frost deposits, which we're looking for on the moon. Um, I think it's possible to look for them on Mercury as well. And um, an innovative new technique at the moon, uh, used by Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, is um, using um, Lyman Alpha, interplanetary Lyman Alpha, as an illumination source. So to look at those uh, permanently shadowed regions to look for water frost. And that's successful so far. Another big area, of course, is um, looking for surface activity and finding surface activity on objects that um, maybe we didn't expect it, such as Enceladus. Um, um, The UV instrument on Cassini was used um, as one of the first methods of finding the plumes on Enceladus by um, stellar occultation. And, of course, um, comets are active and um, UV emissions are um, important probes of the activity and the um, compositions of those bodies. Um, let's see. So what I hope to get out of this workshop is um, an understanding of the currently evolving UV technologies and what we can use in the future, um, in the near future especially, to um, really get sensitive measurements of UV um, sources in the, in, the, um, in the solar system um, one of the key areas is primitive bodies, such as comets that I mentioned, but um, asteroids, um, Kuiper Belt objects, centaurs, are all um, a, a real interesting uh, variety of populations of primitive bodies in the solar system that are going to give clues to the early solar system. And They're unaltered, um, largely unaltered, and so they're going to be kind of retain records of the early solar system. And um, the UV is going to be a good area to observe those objects in because not only can we do a little something with surface composition, but we can also look for activity. And um, by doing solar and stellar occultations, that will be a key way of um, looking for activity. Um, so, and, the, and primitive bodies were kind of a hot topic in the uh, recently um, published uh, planetary decadal survey. Also... Um, Europa continues to be a really important target, the Jovian moon, looking for um, activity there, trying to study the subsurface ocean. And also um, another important area is Uranus, which, of course, we haven't had an orbiter of, so that would be a whole new exploratory um, area to get into. Um, So I think that's it for now.
2: (coughs) Uh, My name is Wes Traub. I'm uh, at JPL. JPL and uh, I'm the uh, chief scientist for the exoplanet exploration program at NASA there. So there are a couple of connections with the ultraviolet and with the technology that we've been talking about today that are relevant for exoplanets. Um, A science application is that it would be interesting if we can look at exoplanets, which, of course, means somehow you have to get rid of the starlight, but I'll discuss that in a minute. Uh, It would be interesting to look at an exoplanet to see in the ultraviolet what its uh, brightness is because, as you know, on the Earth we have the ozone absorption in the stratosphere that would be a feature that you could look for on an exoplanet and see whether or not it has oxygen in its atmosphere, which would then produce ozone in the stratosphere. And that would be a sign of life on that exoplanet because there are no mechanisms for making large amounts of oxygen that we know of unless they are biological mechanisms. So that, that would be an indicator of life on a, on a planet. Not hundred percent, but a pretty good, pretty good shot. So that's one thing. Um, another thing was mentioned this morning which is just looking at a star and watching a giant, um, uh, a, a hot Jupiter pass in front of the star and see it in occultation. Um, This is the transit technique, and transit spectroscopy is a technique that people have used for a couple of years now to characterize exoplanets. It basically amounts to looking at the light that uh, passes through the upper atmosphere of a a planet when it passes in front of the star and occults part of the star and blocks out a percent or a hundredth of a percent of the starlight. And so you look at a small change in the uh, spectrum of the light and take a difference between that when it's blocking the star and when it's not and that difference is indicative of the absorption in the upper atmosphere so that's something that could be done um, you can also do the inverse of that which is to look at the planet when it goes behind the star and look at the reflected light from the planet as it's reflecting and going behind the star and then all of a sudden it gets behind the star and you don't have the reflected light of the planet anymore and so, again subtracting the two spectra would be. Um, a way of getting at the spectrum of the, the reflection spectrum of the planet, which is different than the transmission spectrum, of course. But in both cases, um, an ultraviolet feature, the main ultraviolet feature that people have thought about is um, the ozone feature in the upper atmosphere. So there is a um, a programmatic connection also with ultraviolet, and that is that um, in the exoplanet community we have. A, um, a working group that was uh, convened by NASA just as the optical ultraviolet group uh, area has and uh, in the exoplanet area it's called the exoplanet program analysis group or exo so this <clears throat> this Exopag is composed of uh, a dozen representatives of scientists in the uh, exoplanet community and they've been meeting since we were formed about two years ago, uh, periodically, and at the, the second-last meeting in January of this year, um, we were um, sitting around gnashing our teeth, trying to figure out how it was that we were going to get an exoplanet mission going someday and get past this point where we're only measuring exoplanets by looking at the radial velocity of the star to get the mass and the orbit of the planet, Uh, and doing a little bit of the kind of thing that I was talking about before, which is um, transit spectroscopy. And the key thing that we would like to see in this community is what was recommended by the Astrophysics, um, the Astro 2010 committee, uh, the decadal survey that met in the past two years and put out a report about a year and a few days ago Um, a year ago uh, in early August last year and their key recommendation for a future mission that means in the 2020s, not this decade, their key recommendation was for a mission that would do direct imaging of exoplanets, which is something that we can do with coronagraphs which I'll talk about in a second. Um, So we're very interested in trying to see if there are ways of politically getting this mission going. And one of our bright ideas, which I realize other people have had before, is that uh, it would be a great thing if we joined forces with, and and did it explicitly and overtly, with the ultraviolet optical infrared community and said, hey folks, you know, there's a lot more of us than just the exoplanet freaks that are out there. There's normal people that are doing ultraviolet and optical work. And um, we form a large community, And it is quite conceivable that we could have a single mission, a single telescope feeding both these kinds of instruments. And I learned to my surprise this morning that you're actually thinking of exactly what we were talking about, which was, say, a modest-sized mission, because one dare not think grand thoughts these days, a modest-sized mission, which would be a four-meter telescope, which actually is grand on the scale of things, Um, the scale of W-first, for example, Um, and that... We just simply had to overcome minor technical difficulties in coatings and maybe optics in order to be able to have a combined ultraviolet coronagraph-type mission. So what do you need for these kinds of missions? Well, obviously for an ultraviolet part of the mission, you need to have reflectivities that go down to 1,000 angstroms or so, and it would be helpful to have a telescope that was bigger than a half meter. So we're talking about four meters, and we thought that's pretty dramatic. Um, What do you need for the uh, uh, exoplanet part of it? Well, most of the exoplanet work that we're interested in is in looking at the spectra of planets, uh, basically blocking out the starlight with some kind of coronagraph, which I'll talk about uh, in this context also, and then looking at the light from the planet that's next to it. The contrast ratio between these two is about 10 to the 10th. That's the Earth's. the Earth is ten of them, one times ten to the minus ten of the Sun. If you're at a great distance looking at them, and for stars that are nearby, the planets are pretty close. Of course, they're in one AU type orbits, and so at uh, a, a few parsecs, that just translates into something. Which means that with a telescope of this size, <clears throat> you need to be able to see this ten to the minus tenth object at uh, two or three. Or four diffraction diameters away from the star, and as you know, a normal telescope produces airy rings, and the first airy ring is a few percent. It is not ten to the minus ten; it's a few times ten to the minus two. So, what a coronagraph does is gets is it, it gets rid of the airy rings all the way down to the ten to the minus ten level. Um, so, the idea was that we could have a joint mission. So, there's two technical things, as I said. One is the um, the, um, uh, the coatings and the other is the coronagraph itself and there's there's something of interest here uh, for this meeting on both of those scores first of all the um, the coatings um, sometime this spring I I uh, I had a meeting with some other people at JPL and and learned to my you know great amazement about this thing called atomic layer deposition and I got all thrilled about it and I'm still pretty thrilled about it which means we haven't done many experiments yet and I'll probably be unthrilled after a little <laughs> while but but at the moment I'm really thrilled and the the reason that I like this idea is that it apparently allows you to put uh, as you heard this morning single layers of, of a substance like aluminum and magnesium fluoride or ma- aluminum and lithium fluoride onto a, um, a mirror of any kind and you can do it in a very controlled way and apparently uh... the materials go on in a lot better way than they do when we're doing normal evaporations with uh, uh, hot materials which means in those cases they usually go in and column their structures and they have gaps in them which can absorb water vapor and do bad things uh... with the atomic layer deposition you can put on a smooth layer it does it, it uh, can coat any size of optics you don't need a great large evaporation chamber and the the really wonderful thing about it that uh we haven't actually worked on yet but I have hopes of is that you can now uh you can put on an ultraviolet coating but then what does that do to, in the infra, in the in the visible part of the spectrum well a uh aluminum mag fluoride coating is sort of just fine in the visible part of the spectrum for an ordinary telescope but for a coronagraph you want to have something that's has has the property that it does not cause polarization phase shifts when the light is reflecting off of tilted parts of a primary or secondary mirror. And as you remember, the 10 to the minus 10 uh, requirement means that your wavefront has to be... There's a direct connection between contrast and how well you can suppress uh, spurious things in your your, uh, uh, telescope in the coronagraph and how good the wavefront is if the wavefront is separated because you have polarization shifts at the edge of the primary mirror you know a wavefront that comes in well first of all a wavefront that comes in in the middle of the mirror where it's flat and just reflects back say the S&P polarizations go back together but at the edge the S&P start to separate because they go to different depths into the material and then you get a separation of the wavefront so your wavefront is actually split with the polarization varying around it this is disastrous for a coronagraph so it would be—it's conceivable that if we have this atomic layer deposition material, and this is my little fantasy at the moment—that we can lay on single atomic layers of substances and invent a new kind of material with an index of refraction that does not cause this kind of polarization phase shift. Haven't done it yet, but we started some experiments with uh, with Frank Greer and and with our chair at uh, JPL to do this and uh, we're, we're going to keep on working on this to try and deposit things on on glass and on um, silicon carbide, which is also a good material for the future. So there's one more thing that uh, is of interest with this, this kind of ultraviolet technology and the nanotechnology, and that is the coronagraph itself. We have inventions for about a half a dozen different kinds of... Uh, it must be admitted competing kinds of coronagraphs, and each one of them thinks that the other kind is the very best. One of the newest ones that has come in is a um, a wavelength grating, which is constructed as consecutive circles, grooves in a uh, piece of silicon, say, that are etched into the silicon, as V grooves in this particular case, with the shape, the distance between the grooves less than a wavelength, so the light does not diffract off; it has to go forward in the single mode in the in the first order. Uh, that's what subwavelength grading means. Um, but by putting the material in in circular V grooves, like a phonograph record, if you remember phonograph records, um, and coating it with uh, layers on top of that, you can produce a uh, polarization. De- uh, shifting device such that the um, um, it's a, it's, it's, it acts like a half wave plate and parts of the wave that have a, f- uh, a polarization parallel to the groove at that point go through faster than parts that are perpendicular to the groove or vice versa. But it's a circular groove and so what you end up with on the backside of this if you say illuminate this phonograph record with a Uh, a star from a telescope and so the star image is a very bright star image and then it has all these little airy rings on the sides of it you you put that whole pattern onto this phonograph record type of thing and the light that comes through at the back end if you uh, put another uh, mirror and focus it um, essentially because of the gratings gets scattered off to large angles in all directions so all of the light from this star including the airy rings out to the, the 500th airy ring somehow gang up on each other and they scatter off to the side and so all you have to do is go downstream where you would normally see an image of the primary mirror and block that point because all the light is scattered in a ring and beyond the edge of that image of the primary mirror from that central star any planet that comes through on the side does not get affected by the same way and its light goes straight through in the pupil and so you just have to put a lens there and focus everything the manufacture of these things is, is done at several places with liquid crystals in the United States and with photonic crystals in Japan uh, at one university. But in looking at the picture of the photonic crystal device that I just described, it occurred to me that this is something we could make in the microdevices lab at JPL because it's just grooves, teeny tiny little grooves in a piece of silicon, and then it's coated with stuff which we could use uh, the uh, ALD. Technique for coating with you know 20 or 30 layers of of materials, and the materials actually Frank tells me are in the part of the uh, periodic diagram that you saw that did not have little X's through it. So we can put we can put these materials on, and so I think this is a really cool thing that we could possibly do in the future, and that's why I'm here today.
1: Okay, thanks a lot. Just um, just want to speed up. Well, obviously, we speed it up. just want to let people know we're going to go until about 12.30. Um, we started late, and so we're, we're just going to end about um, 20 minutes late or so. Uh, but obviously, yeah, we want to speed it up, so. so let's just keep going, and then we'll have some time for questions. Uh,
4: I'm Kevin France from the University of Colorado. Um, my background's in uh, UV instrumentation and the interstellar medium, but uh, I've been with the Cosmic Origin Spectrograph team for the last couple of years, uh, mainly working on uh, protoplanetary gas disks and exoplanets. Um, And uh, the thing that I think that we should, one science focus that a future UV mission should have should be looking at the life cycle of interstellar gas as it goes from becoming protoplanetary disks to exoplanets. And I think the UV has something to contribute to basically the entire life cycle. And a lot of this work, uh, uh, some of it that Paul suggested in his introduction, is being done now, but it's being done kind of piecemeal Uh, because it takes a large investment of uh, HST time, which is hard to get. Um, And so I think a future UV mission could address this as as an evolutionary system as opposed to just uh, an individual observing proposal to answer one question. Uh, So right now we're working on uh, assembling, actually, a fairly large sample of uh, classical t stars, fairly young protoplanetary disks, where the UV... uh, gives us access to molecular hydrogen, carbon monoxide, tracers of the inner disk atmosphere that you really can't do any other way except from the UV, the strong electronic transitions of H2 that, that Paul talked about. Um, so that's something that we're beginning to do on a, on a large scale now, but uh, we're kind of limited to where we can go. We're pretty much limited to the torus star-forming region. Much beyond that begins to, again, take prohibitive amounts of observing time. We'd ultimately like to push out to externally illuminated disks, like in Orion or other star-forming regions. Um, a little bit later in the life cycle, uh, as debris disks form, we have examples of transi- transitional systems where we still see some gas disk, but uh, a lot of the refractory elements are missing in the accretion spectrum, and we assume that that means that they're going into planetesimal formation. So uh, that is the gas that goes into giant planets and the refractory elements that go into terrestrial planets. Uh, So then we can, then there's sort of a gap of a couple hundred million years. And then we have actual planetary systems. And uh, as Wes talked about, we're doing uh, transit measurements of uh, escaping atmospheres. Probably turns out that exoplanets aren't evaporating, but they're certainly escaping. Um, I have some cute movies in, in my presentation that you're not seeing here, Um, and I would love to show them to you later. And we're also looking for uh, direct measurements of hot Jupiters. Uh, So far, no detections, but um, it's uh, an interesting idea. And then uh, even further down the line, uh, in terms of Earth-like planets, before we can uh, get around to going to look for the ozone we need to understand how the ozone is uh, produced particularly around low mass stars uh... Late k-type stars and m dwarfs other than very very few active objects we know very little about those stars and it's the uv flux that catalyzes the ozone production that we eventually want to go look for uh, but right now models assume uh, things that are all over the board and none of them are observationally motivated so This is something that we can start to do with the next generation of UV spectrographs. Uh, It's going to take factors of 10, uh, sensitivity, low backgrounds, probably resolving powers of 50,000 or greater. Um, So how do we do that? Uh, As it was pointed out earlier, the area of a 2.4 meters, and 4 meters, the ratio of that is not 10. So so we're going to need factors of two probably from detectors. We're going to need the coatings that were discussed, um, and I think we'll hear more about this week. Uh, probably another factor of a couple there. And um, and if to go to R of 50,000, that probably means you want a shell spectrograph, which probably means we're going to need uh, particularly low scatter of shells, which is one of the problems with STIS. Uh, there's lots of great stuff about STIS, but the shells are kind of scattery. Uh, so all of those things added up pretty much make factors of 10 or 20 in a 4-meter in a class telescope. Uh, and it doesn't take a special instrument. You can use the same spectrograph that you're going to use to do intergalactic medium work or pretty much any traditional UV spectroscopic design uh, that uh, allows those uh, features, the high resolution and the high sensitivity will do. So uh, you can pretty much do all of these things with one super UV instrument, um, so I guess uh, why I'm here is is wanting to not only spread the word about what's being done so far, uh, but but make sure this is on the table uh, as a I think an important science driver for the future UV uh, missions, and to hear what's uh, going on in the community to help inform uh, when we write those uh, science cases. So that's wonderful.
5: I'm Bruce Woodgate, and we uh, work at NASA Goddard and uh, we're working on um, future technologies for um, UV missions and for um, some of the visible missions There's supposed to be an optical panel as well, so I think it's okay to include that um, and uh, in in two areas, um, one for the um, uh, optics. Uh, related to detecting the atmospheres of exoplanets, and that is to investigate int- integral field spectrographs, with, uh, but with sp- some specific aspects. And one in particular is the, um, the exoplanets are very faint, and if we assume we have a good coronagraph up ahead of the instrument at the end, then we don't have to do that job too, but you want to maintain reasonable contra. Um, Contrast in the, in the spectrograph, too, um, particularly since you want to look at the spectra that go a little bit broader than the um, than the high contrast area of the coronagraph that one might use, uh, because you also want to use the um, final science instrument as the um, final aspect of the wavefront sensor by looking at speckles and you can look at speckles a little bit broader than where the coronagraph is, is at its best. Um, there's a little more light there it's light you don't want but you want to then go back and drive the final stage of the uh, deformable mirror in the coronagraph to uh, using the science instrument because you have the full uh, common path that, uh, in the optics that you need and so one aspect of that is that clearly what you need um, is to uh, in any space spectrograph with um, a diffraction limit, the um, sky brightness is low enough that even with the um, two or three electrons read noise of the best uh, CCDs, that adds up over the days or weeks that it might take you to get an Earth-like planet spectrum. And so you need to get rid of that. And one way to do that is to use an electron multiplying CCD, such as E2V supply. And um, there is one problem in there that we could try to do a little better, and that is the clock-induced charge. And so a number of people have tried to get rid of that. Because if you frame at a reasonable rate so that you um, have uh, an acceptable dynamic range, even for very faint objects, then that clock-induced charge can become a problem and sort of replace the read noise in a sense. Uh, now, some folk at um, uh, Montreal have um, come up with a solution to do that by changing the controller for the um, for the EMCCDs, and so we are working with them to try to investigate. How well that works, and to try to optimise its its use. So, um, so we are doing that in um, a um, integral field spectrograph that we have just made for the Apache Point Telescope, um, which is 3.6 metre, not too far from a 4 metre. And uh, so, uh, so we're, that's one technological aspect of what we're doing there. Uh, we are also in the science areas um, with that instrument and its, and its precursor, which is a Fabri-Perot we've been using for many years. Um, we're investigating the um, first 10 million years or so of uh, uh, planetary system formation and looking with that at the uh, jets that come out of the stars and finding that... Um, the jets remain not just for the small fraction of a million years, which was thought, um, say, 10, 15 years ago, but they're still there if you look at faint enough ones. The jets are in, um out to 4 to 6 million years old um, uh, and so really appear, appear to be disappearing right about the stage where you think the planets are forming out of the disk. We're combining that information with um, coronography from Hubble uh, where we look at the um, uh, disks of the stars in the same epoch. Uh, and, uh, in fact, we're still using the one remaining coronagraph on Hubble, however crude, just across in the beam. And uh, But by, inf- by working with the... Um, moss folk, and they have made improvements on how you can uh, re- reduce the uh, uh, the scattered light by using a, a reference star and subtracting that and using role analyses and so we've, um, we've got six different roles in exp- um, work that's about to be reported upon and seeing quite new features closer to the star than have been done before because we have a we can look into 0.3 arc seconds with Hubble. This is a very... Um, uh, so there are... It's worth pointing out that um, to, there are a few years uh, before new coronagraphs come along where this is actually a window of opportunity for um, uh, for doing observations with the... Um, I think the highest contrast coronagraph we still... Have now. I think it's still a little bit better than it's been doing from, done from the ground for disks. That's uh, one thing that we're doing. The other um, main thing that we're doing is to try to develop more sensitive imaging detectors for the UV. And the approach we've been taking is to use the new um, 3.5 materials, particularly gallium nitride. Um, and we're also going to. Um, uh, start working with um, magnesium zinc oxide. Uh, we've got quite high quantum efficiencies, which I can probably show tomorrow, um, of up to 70% at around Lyman-Alpha uh, using um, p-dope gallium nitride, both planar and uh, also with the um, nanowires that you saw some data on this morning that uh, Chris Bertness here is uh, uh, teamed with us to make those, and uh, they're coming along a little later, but rapidly improving. And the last ones we just tested, in fact, the results are earlier this week. Um, we've got up over uh, 50% at near-lyman alpha, and um, a little, and actually surpasses the planar material at slightly longer wavelengths. Um, the the detectors that we're trying to improve upon, going back to Stiss on Hubble, which is uh, what we built, um, the, we only had 9 percent QE at um, around 2,000 angstroms uh, with the cesium telluride there, which is not hard to beat, but um, a lot, quite a number of people here are, are beating those levels now, um, and so we Right now uh, the photocathodes that we have are opaque and I think throughout everybody's experience then you can get the order of a factor of two better in opaque photocathodes than you can in semi-transparent ones. So we want to now move to what's the best kind of detector that can use this. Now the the plain photocathodes that we have are on uh, well crystal matched um, plain materials so if you want to use it with micro plates then you're going to move to uh, which the traditional readout um, uh, system for photocathodes then it uh, was mostly uh, was used on STIS and, on, on Hubble then um, we Let's see. Yeah, we. If you want to go to microchannel plates now, it it's certainly possible, but those are highly structured, and so you're not working with well crystal matched material. So the simplest kind of way to use the material we have high QE on right now would be to use an electron bombarded CCD or CMOS detector, so that you. Um, the, uh, you can you, So you can use the pho- <coughs> photocathodes that we have right now there. And this is a derivative of the um, EBCCDs that were developed at Princeton by Ed Jenkins and have been carried on now by um, Chuck Joseph at uh, Rutgers University. So uh, we teamed with him as well. And so we're going to put these photocathodes, when and we do cesiate them, so in our machine at Goddard where we measure the, we put the cesium on the gallium nitride, and then we can also um, put a sealing capability, a detector in, um, such as the EBCCD. CCD, and we're going to use actually EBC MOS, but um, and. Uh, Sealed uh, photocathode. Uh, so uh, right. I, I, mean, I might
1: have to interrupt. Just that. All right. So, are you going to talk about that tomorrow as well? Yes, or? I am. Okay. So, All right. So, so, so I can leave this so tomorrow. Yeah, want to be Details tomorrow. of what we're doing there. So. Okay. So maybe we so. should move on to Chris. Then for, <laughs> okay. Yeah, just. To, uh, and Chris, <clears throat> of course, you have very little time because you get more. Time. And I'm
6: always brief, as you know. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Okay. Uh, Well, I'm a professor here at Caltech. Uh, I'm the PI of Galax, and I think that uh, uh, Galax is an example of um, what happens when uh, you uh, both have a great team working with you, like David and Ozzy and Peter and Patrick. They're all in the room here, Um, but uh, when you make a 100 to 1,000-fold increase in sensitivity in some area, and what we've been struggling with in the last decade, I think, is trying to understand where where in the UV we're going to be making those t- two to three order of magnitude increases um, and when, when we're talking about apertures, which are less than a factor of three larger in area. So, of course, one of the areas is detectors, and I, I think we can envision factors of five and maybe even as high as ten increases there in, de- in uh, um, coatings, uh, maybe using ALD and gratings, possibly using uh, new fabrication techniques, um, and that will allow us to uh, exploit a, a, new, a new degree of freedom which has not yet been exploited in UV, and that is uh, wide field of view imaging and multi-object spectroscopy, which gives you multiplexing advantages, of 10 to 100 to 1,000, which, which combined with these other efficiency gains, can give you very dramatic uh, increases in capability in the future. Now, the science the science that I've been interested in uh, for over a decade has been the the possibility of uh, basically um, complementing the, the work that has been done with quasar absorption lines in in which was mentioned by. Uh, Paul this morning <laughs> studying the uh, intergalactic medium, which is the dominant reservoir of baryons in the universe, and <laughs> most of, most of the baryons are not in galaxies, uh, and five percent of the mass energy density is in, is in this uh, in these baryons um, that we we have a, a, a somewhat vague understanding of where they are with respect to um, the constituents we know about galaxies and other structures, but the problem is we can 't map them, and I believe that mapping them is the next frontier, uh, because that, that will be a necessary ingredient in any theory of baryonic structure formation, which is, I think, one of the things we're all trying to get at, all the way from cosmic scales down to planetary scales. So uh, in order to, to do that mapping, one, there are two alternatives. One is to try to get to tomographic uh, absorption of source densities, and that requires very large apertures in the visible, uh, maybe not as large in the UV. It, it actually is conceivable with modest apertures uh, in the UV because the sources are much closer. Um, and one can use galaxies rather than uh, quasars in principle. Uh, but the other approach is to use emission lines uh, uh, f- that are created by the very uh, <laughs> strong resonance features of, of the dominant constituents in the universe, hydrogen, carbon, silicon, and so on, oxygen, and so on, Uh, And measure them, uh, measure their uh, cosmological redshift, and and, and measure them in emission, basically mapping mapping the the relative location of the gas from which galaxies form uh, and which is expelled from galaxies uh, as they evolve, uh, and the the galaxies themselves to understand ultimately how galaxies form and evolve over cosmic time. Uh, In order to do this. uh, it's 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 challenging because of course the lines are very faint uh, in the optical when you're looking at redshift very redshifted uh, IGM emission you're, you struggle with a very large background principally airglow and the zodiacal light but an advantage in the UV is that the sky is hundred times fainter and therefore the IGM emission lines are, which are also at somewhat lower redshift um, uh, the contrast is much is much higher and in fact you can you can detect um, Lines from the circumgalactic medium galaxies in the virilized dark matter halos that host galaxies, uh, those will probably have emission line strengths that are significantly larger than the sky background. And one can even contemplate uh, with larger missions um, detecting uh, directly the emission from the diffuse cosmic web uh, and mapping out the, the baryonic. Uh, Filaments, which are the dominant reservoir of baryons, so that 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 science goal drives uh, a number of instrument and and detector requirements: uh, low background, high QE, large field of view, large number of pixels, um, in order to basically add up a large number of pixels of the sky spectroscopically into a single spectrum. Um, and uh, I believe that the technology is poised to give us those capabilities, and I'm hoping that one of the outcome of this workshop will be uh, to, to make that possibility gel. Okay?
1: Okay, thanks. So, um, so yeah, why don't we uh, just thank everybody. Just for, uh...
0: This program is brought to you by Caltech. Visit us at caltech.edu.